I tend to be able to express simpler ideas in the poetry that feel like they wouldn't fit with the rest of my practice if I were developing it more. I also like to approach certain aspects of my practice, poetry included, as uh, an amateur. I've, I've been really enjoying that. Okay. Not having that pressure of being yeah. skilled in a particular area and just being able to explore and be authentic and be silly. Um, I think that's very important. I, I got yeah. lost in, in the audio and uh, the installation and the, the grand conceptual aspects of it and the activism for a while and realized I was sort of losing that passion and, and that playfulness. And the way that I started bringing that back was by, yeah, writing poems that I, I self-described as shitty poems. Not because I'm being <laughs> self-judgmental, but because I'm allowing myself that space. Welcome to Insights of an Echo Artist. My name is Joanna Lerka. I'm an echo artist and arts writer. In every episode, I bring worldwide artists that embody the fight to create a more sustainable world. Hey everyone, thank you so much for being here again with me today for another episode of Insights of an Echo Artist. So today we have UK-based interdisciplinary artist Adrian Shetland, whose practice is focused on audio production, music, audiovisual installation, analog photography, poetry, sculpture and software. So they work with a lot of different mediums and enjoy having a more exploratory practice. So having a symbiosis between being a professional artist and an amateur. So they can explore and enjoy the freedom of not having the pressure of being a creative professionally. But they focus on very specific themes. So the climate crisis and the interaction between humans and nature, the decay, gender and the impact of technology with the emphasis on texture. So they're going to talk about their practice and the methods behind it and the importance of taking care of our mental health, both for our individual and creative growth. So Adrian is a very interesting artist with very unorthodox projects, very exploratory. We had a very engaging conversation. Stay put. On an unrelated note, we opened a pre-order for the second volume of the magazine. So if you are interested in knowing more or ordering yours, I will leave the link in the description below. Now, let's dive in. So as an interdisciplinary artist, working with audio production, music, audiovisual installation, analog photography, poetry, sculpture, and software, can you give us a general overview of your practice? Yeah, so as you can see, it's pretty broad um, with a lot of different areas that I sort of dabble with. And there's more as well that I've been exploring, some as an amateur and some um, to try and integrate into my practice. But there are some themes that kind of run through them I look a lot at kind of the intersection between things like the intersection between the natural world, uh, the biosphere and the Anthropocene and the the human center planet. And there are other particular areas that I like to focus in on, regardless of the discipline. And also within practices, um, there are elements that I draw from those approaches uh, that, that are the same. So for my music, sometimes I'm in the studio recording instruments and working with synthesis, which feels quite musical in the sort of traditional sense. But then in almost all of my musical productions and in my separate audio productions, 
I'm going out and taking field recordings and kind of engaging in that that dialogue between me and the environment that feels sometimes observational and sometimes like I'm I'm a part of the environment that I'm interacting with. So I might go out with my field mic and notice uh, certain things make a particular sound and record it as an observer. Or I might see like a, a, a taut piece of rope or a metal sheet or something like that and interact with it to get that sort of sound. And that feels similar to my photography, for example, where sometimes I feel like I'm observing and I'm taking a picture of something as it is. And other times I'm framing something in a particular way or I'm moving things around to get a sense of what I feel represented by the image. And for example, in my audiovisual installations, there's a lot more of the obvious bridging of the two where I might be presenting photographic works that I've, I've done or, or videos uh, alongside field recordings and or music. Even when it's just the field recordings, the way that I edit them, the way that I arrange them, the way that they're spatialized feels very musical to me. There's a sense of rhythm and a sense of movement and progression and a sense of change that I think pervades my, my music as well. So I think that's that's the sort of overview of the, the intersects there. So your background is in music or audio? So it's originally in, in music. Um, I started just making simple songs on Logic uh, in around 2016. And before then, I would kind of play a couple of songs that I knew on the piano and, and things like that, but nothing particularly in depth. Um, and I sort of started taking it from there and started noticing that the things I enjoy with my own music production are often quite strange, manipulating things, creating small textures, looking to microsound. And the evolution from that into field recordings and samples, and then from there into wider audio work felt quite obvious to me. Okay. So your practice focused on climate crisis, interaction between humans and nature, decay, gender, and the impact of technology with an emphasis on texture. Can you deconstruct these themes for us? Absolutely. So I think I'll start with a little bit at the end about texture. Um, I think a very tangible part of the artworks that I make involve looking at things in a very particular way or having that focus on, on what I call texture. And it varies depending on what kind of practice I'm dipping into more as to what that means. But in my music, there are often very small sounds that I spend an extreme amount of time massaging and, and arranging and spatializing that add something to the overall overall song. And even when I'm not focusing on sh those short sounds that are being arranged, I'm having these soundscapes running often underneath or in the background of the music. So as a passive listener, you normally don't notice, but there is uh, an extreme amount of attention and care that goes towards constructing something that's, that feels very textural to me. In my photography, I work with film um, and there's a few reasons for that. Uh, one of them is the that that texture that you get from from analog film, from the film grain and the way that the chemicals react with light and the way that you can take it into the darkroom and, and start developing the images in, in a particular way. You've got an, an element of chaos there as well, but that focus on, on these fine things that digital cameras don't pick up because they're too good. They, they're too accurate at, at detecting things. 
they present you a very clean image. It, it feels often quite textualist. And then in terms of the themes of my practice, the climate crisis comes up a lot. Obviously, more of the focus of this uh, podcast. It's something that has felt at times important to express and, and, and that sort of thing. And sometimes it's felt like I have this tremendous sense of obligation because I know what's happening in the world and I am coming from a, a position of, of privilege, you know, in terms of my identity and, and my place in the society in which I live. I'm not yeah. usually privileged compared to, to other people, but I do live in, in England. I live in a, a modern sort of quote unquote modern Western democracy. Um, I, one of the countries that uh, is responsible for a huge amount of devastation through colonialism and the legacies that, that persist today and neoliberalism. And so I feel that I have to be doing anything that I can to, to prevent yeah. this. And sometimes I feel more active and passionate and, and loving about it and connecting with, with nature and with people. And other times I wish that I didn't have to be doing this. I have this selfish desire to, to not have to do it. I, I mean, I, yep. I would have a focus on nature and, and the environment. And I'm sure that those elements would persist in my work, that kind of intersection between the natural world and, and the human world. But certainly the climate focus and that focus on decay and degradation would not exist in exactly the same way if I did not have this, this looming disaster that, that pervades everything that, you know, everything in, in society and, and all these conversations and everything that I do. I do love the decay aspect without that context of the climate, but it is hard to escape. I think there's something beautiful about the natural cycles of, of decay and destruction and regrowth and new life. And yeah. I think that there's a very interesting overlap between that and the the kind of human structures thing where when you leave areas to to their own devices they will nature will rush in and start reclaiming everything and start presenting itself as if we had never been there there in the first instance and there are there are many other things I think my activism started with privacy and and digital rights and things like that freedom of speech um so I was very interested even when I was uh, like a young teenager, in privacy, in government overreach, in organizations that are fighting for digital rights like the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation in America. And my interest in technology has changed in certain ways, but it's still very, very present. I did a computing course. I was thinking of going into IT before I realized that I was generally good at it, but not passionate about doing that. But those skills always come up in, in music production, audio editing, uh, that sort of thing. But I think that, that technology has presented such a wondrous amount of positive options for us, but very quickly it becomes corporatized and it becomes a tool for advertising and control and manipulation. Uh, things like social media, they're wonderful in the ways that they can connect you with your community and keep yeah. in touch with people. But yeah, the, the actual impact that these corporations are having, particularly Facebook and, and Google with, with those platforms is extremely, extremely concerning. And I think that does come up in my artwork, but it's been dwarfed by this, this climate thing and those themes, particularly at the moment. How does gender plays into, into your practice? Yeah, so I'm non-binary um, and most of my friends are queer um, and many of them trans. And so I include myself within that. 
and it it comes up in a lot in a lot of ways. I think there's kind of broader, more conceptual things about uh, how society treats people based on their physical characteristics and based on their gender, and the ways in which that has never appealed or made sense to me. But also just this this sense of exploration that I have towards my gender and and sexuality and things. I think is very important and I think is reflective of, of my, my work as an artist, just approaching things with curiosity and questioning things when often they seem to be unquestioned by a lot of people. Why, why is it the way that it is? Why am I expected to act or present in a certain way based on how I was assigned at birth? And the other side of it is that it's very important to me. Just recently in Brighton, actually, there was a, uh, a hate rally by some TERFs, trans-exclusionary people who were who came, travelled in to our city, Brighton having a reputation for being very queer, um, to to deliver hate speech about why you know come trans on. women and men and, yeah. and why they should not be allowed healthcare and and rights and things. And so I was part of a, a counter protest there, and it sort of reminded me that although there's the positives of having this great amount of solidarity with other queer people in, in the city and our allies. We are still marginally marginalized. I can uh, exist in this bubble sometimes amongst friends and uh, loved ones. And even just around in this city, I feel a lot more safe than I have in others, but there is that, that opposition uh, just to us existing. And so that has to be responded to. And that does come up in my, in my artistic work. Would you say that it appears more into your music or sculptures, installations and stuff like that? So, so far, my installation work has all focused on the natural world. And at that, generally, the intersection between the natural world and our built environment or the ways that humans are, are imposing on that. Um, so the gender aspect comes up less there. It does come up in in my music, and the sense of of transition and change I think is is very important. So while I'm not at the moment, I haven't really been writing songs that are explicitly about my gender and and things, except in the context of some some uh, trauma. The idea of of change and transition and approaching things with that level of questioning and curiosity i think comes up a lot yeah it's part of of you as an individual so i i would believe that it's it merges with your practice even if you don't do it you know on a conscious level absolutely i, I think it does actually come up in my poetry in particular thinking about that that's the area that that it, it expresses itself the most because it feels it feels less suited to having these layers of of distance that i build up and, and layers of you know, barriers to authenticity, I think, because it's very scary to be to be sort of upfront about these sorts of things, especially knowing what the response is going to be from certain groups of people. So you'd say that your poetry is more of a personal thing. It's more of, of an exploration of your identity more than the rest of the works you do. Yeah, it's certainly more raw and simplistic. I tend to be able to express simpler ideas in the poetry that feel like they wouldn't fit with the rest of my practice if I were developing it more. I also like to approach certain aspects of my practice, poetry included, as uh, an amateur. I've, I've been really enjoying that. Okay. Not having that pressure of being yeah. skilled in a particular area and just being able to explore and be authentic and be silly. Um, I think that's very important. 
I, I got yeah. lost in in the audio and uh, the installation and the the grand conceptual aspects of it and the activism for a while and realized I was sort of losing that passion and, and that playfulness and the way that I started bringing that back was by yeah writing poems that I, I self-described as shitty poems not because I'm being <laughs> self-judgmental but because I'm allowing myself that space also we had the amazing opportunity to partner with sound artist Annabelle Galea who created the sounds that you hear during the conversation you're gonna hear and listen to her work during this season so go give her your love and support I will leave the link in the description so you can find her I believe that when you are too serious in your own practice and, you know, when you are artist is an activist and works in such heavy subjects, sometimes we take, we take the play out of, of it and it, it takes a tool on, on us. So it's always good to have, you know, that avenue of our practice that it's not really an avenue of, of our practice, not the professional side of our practice, but still help us get back to that childhood mode of being an artist and experimenting and trying new things. Absolutely. And as, as I sort of touched on earlier, that sense of exploration and curiosity, I think, are so tightly linked with creativity that when yeah. I was going down that route of not not exploring that enough and not not honoring that enough, it was impacting the rest of my output. Yeah. So why is it so important for you that the audience becomes part of your installations? Yeah. So I think, firstly, the installation environment is perfect for trying to get more engagement with with the audience um, there are some aspects to which it it l is lacking primarily when people are kind of floating in and out and not particularly paying attention to things um, but even so the ability to create these immersive environments can transport people there's this idea of even the most basic form of of that sonic art aspect of translocating sound bringing sound from one place to another and you know coming along with that you've got imagery and, and videos that can help with the the immersive nature of that uh, you can you have this amazing power as an artist to transport people from from that gallery environment into whatever space you're constructing or documenting or translocating but you've also got this opportunity to transform the gallery space and, and bring it out into into the wider world Although I haven't really got uh, any of this experience under my belt, I feel as though uh, things like land art and, and public art would be quite finely linked to that. And so I would love to, to delve into that a little bit more. But as far as the installation environment goes, you have this ability to communicate experience. And I think that's what, what draws me to art. It's for things, to me, uh, it's for things that I can't express with language. Um, or at least not with, okay. with direct language. So when I'm writing music, the emotions that I'm experiencing and the experiences that I've had get channeled through the audio and the sonics and everything. And um, I think that's an idea that's quite easy for people to understand. But then the installation environment, I'm trying to take an experience that I've had and the emotions around that, and I'm trying to put them in a space and construct that space that people can then walk into with their own lives and experience. I also do think it's it's it touches more on that aspect of um, promoting social awareness and, and social change, because I think with installation work, 
you are confronted with things in a much more visceral way than if you're just looking at pictures on your phone or just listening to a song. But it, it depends on the person, of course. Yeah, but I, I think it's it's a bit of a universal thing because installation, the audience is immersed within the work. Even if, if you have audio, sound, and even image, the person is, is more aware of the issue because it's, it's as if they were within or in the space, in the environment. Yeah, I also think that there are some areas where you can also get a little bit more out of it. Um, so, for example, to close my uh, current exhibition, I'm having this listening session where I'm inviting people in to um, discuss the artwork and the themes, but also to listen to a soundscape that I've uh, arranged from the field recordings that are present in the piece. And I think that sort of environment allows you to focus more on the the sonics and focus more on being drawn into that environment um, and it gets away from that idea earlier that I mentioned of just kind of wandering in and, and not really taking much in and then wandering out. Also, if you are an artist and want to be featured on the magazine, go to the page, submit your work on our website and see the required steps. We hope to see your work. So this exhibition is the grey shape of the city. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Can you can you talk a bit about it? Absolutely. So it's my first solo exhibition of my work, and it's uh, an audiovisual installation that it showcases both analog photographs and field recordings that I took in the Chernobyl exclusion zone. So in 2019, I hiked with a, a group of friends and associates there for four days through the outer edges of the zone and we got deeper into these forests um, until we eventually arrived at Pripyat, the city. The majority of the pictures are from Pripyat with some of them from buildings around the outskirts but those were definitely a focus on uh, that decay and that aspect of reclamation. The experience of going there was one of the most important and profound things that I've ever done. It was also the most physically exerting thing that I've ever done. And I was just drawn into this sense of, of the power of nature, just being able to come in and reclaim everything. I, I felt like I was being given this this glimpse of a, a post-human landscape where uh, we've we've stopped and the humans are gone, but nature prevails and it thrives. Actually, the UN environmental group referred to the Chernobyl exclusion zone as, as Europe's third largest area, third largest nature reserve, an area of biodiversity. Wow. wow, it's amazing. Yeah. So I think that that aspect is extremely important to me. But in terms of the actual exhibition, I've got these um, analog photographs in black and white that have been blown up and, and printed out. They're, they're in an unedited state. Obviously, uh, excluding the act of development, which can change things. And those field recordings uh, are specialised in, in quad. So you've got four speakers that um, play these sounds that have been mapped in certain areas and specialised by me, um, editing them and, and arranging them in a particular way. Uh, and that tells a little bit of a sonic journey, uh, a story there. There's that narrative aspect of um, nature sounds uh, that are calling from different areas of the room, drawing you and drawing your attention to the, the different images, and then um, hiking and footsteps uh, of of us moving through that space. Because, of course, 
I think in a lot of documentarian work, there's an aspect where an element of just having what's presented, just focusing on the uh, the natural area or or the, the built area or, or whatever you're looking at, and not acknowledging that a person has had to go there to to document that, and that that is an act of interaction that's happening there. There's a dialogue that's happening both between the art and the audience and the artist and, and the environment. So there's an aspect there that, that felt important to be kept in. Yeah, and, and the the photographs, another reason other than the, the sort of uh, things I touched on earlier about film versus digital, the reason that they're analog photographs and the reason that they're black and white is that I, I chose a very high ISO black and white film uh, for the express purpose of, of capturing radiation artifacts. So uh, radiation is, is invisible, um, but its effects uh, include damaging the chemicals in the film and leaving these brilliant bright white lines and dots in the image that can be seen. So there is an element to which uh, the being in this area of higher radiation comes through in the work in a, in a visual way. Um, although I think another thing that it's very important to note, the actual amount of radiation that we absorbed during the whole four days that we were there, including the day in Pripyat, uh, is less than the amount that we would have absorbed on a, a long haul flight. So from, from Europe to America, Australia. Um, okay. Yeah, the, the, there is this uh, misconception that the area is, is horribly irradiated and, and, and if you visit there, you'll, you'll get cancer or anything like that. But the cleanup efforts and the amount of time that, that the area has had to, to settle in has reduced the, the radioactive, the amount of radiation that you absorb. There are areas that are extremely dangerous, uh, particularly near the reactor and in certain areas where, where firefighters' um, clothes have been left and um, the, the claw arm of one of the uh, robots that they use to in the cleanup efforts, those things are extremely dangerous. And it's, of course, good not to uh, disturb the ground too much because the seasons and rainwater will push down radioactive dust um, into the soil. But if you disturb it too much, it can be kicked up. Um, okay. But without those caveats, yeah, it's it's a lot less dangerous. And the exterior areas of the zone where there's where there was already less human development and now it's been fully blocked off, um, they have lower radiation levels than than the city in which I live and the airport, for example. Can you tell me why you were so interested in talking about Chernobyl in itself and this project in specific? What pulled you to create this project? Yeah, it's something that I've, I've wrestled with for a little while because there, the coming at it from an, a, a very respectful angle is extremely important because it was a, a terrible, terrible accident that affected the lives of so many people and still affects people to this day. Yeah. Um, and so it was difficult to to conceptualize a project that, that got across what I wanted to express with it without engaging with those elements that I, I don't feel like I, I have a right to to engage with and I don't feel like I have an ability to engage with so taking away from the human element was was a, a priority for me in fact uh, I was not planning on on releasing or working with any of the the things that I did I went there with my field field mic and with my uh, camera so that I could 
capture something from that area that I could, you know, take back with me um, yeah. without obviously taking taking items from the area. And the act of documenting things is very much it does feel like I'm interacting in a in a deeper way than if I'm just in a in a space. But the those feelings that I had of of this post human world and that amazing profound sense of nature's ability to reclaim were so important for me to to express and they are the the themes that i focused on in my work this ability for these concrete sculptures concrete uh structures sorry to be consumed and to be used as as a habitat and an environment for nature to flourish in is is it's is really wonderful and and i think i get caught up in this idea that uh industrial society and the terrible amounts of pollution and human development that that happens of course much of which is is necessary like giving places for people to live uh, yeah. is an insanely destructive act on the scale that it's being done and it feels like this is permanent and it feels like we're we're putting concrete into the earth and we're we're building these structures of metal and and, and steel and we're spewing all of this this plastic and pollution into the environment and that that's going to be there forever and there are elements of truth in that in in the some of the damage that we're doing is extremely long-lasting and extremely uh, damaging to the environment. And there are aspects of biodiversity that are lost. There are species and habitats that we've wiped out. Yeah, yeah. But even still, nature will prevail. When we talk about climate change as, as this idea of the end of the world, it feels very selfish to me because, uh, especially when I talk about it, because I'm not talking about the end of the world. I'm talking about the end of my world, the end of, of the human-centered planet. I don't think it's possible for climate change to um, extinctify the human race because we are, we are very resilient and <laughs> there are many, many ways which we would survive whatever yeah. ecological disaster we, we produce. Of course, there'll be a huge amount of, of suffering if we continue down this route. But even if all the humans uh, get wiped out, nature will prevail. There will be bacteria and plant life and we've seen we've seen in previous extinction events that immediately after the extinction event has happened there is a huge flourishing burst of evolutionary activity and the biodiversity shoots through the roof because although we've had this disaster where it's stripped away so much of life it then gives this opportunity for for new life to come and interact with this new environment and to unseat creatures and plant life that were dominant at the time. Yeah. Th there's a lot of aspects to climate change that I have to focus on because focusing too much on what we're doing right now and the huge corporate forces and governmental forces that are at play and the amount of human devastation that's happening can quickly become very overwhelming and, and, and difficult to, to engage with. Uh, yeah. without yeah. you know without destroying my mental health so these yeah. are the things that i think about and these are the themes that come up in in the work and why why chernobyl because it's such a good example such a good showcase of those things yeah So going back to the two major themes of your work, so 
So nature basically left in abandonment can flourish and the opposite, but just in the same way that humans, so the negative impact of humans on the environment. Can you walk us through these two, these two concepts that are basically the same, but two different perspectives? Absolutely. So I think the quicker and simpler one to look at is the negative impact of humans. I think that the artworks that I make are a response to both the destruction that, that we're doing as a human race and the level to which I'm complicit in that. Even making the best consumer choices and, and exercising that to, to whatever extent that's even possible, I'm still contributing to, to ecological yeah. devastation, regardless of, of what I do. The only exception would be if I were to go fully off-grid somewhere and the amount of privilege and access that that, that requires and yeah. the level to which that's checking out of my responsibilities as, as, as a, a person in, in society and you know the obligation that I feel towards trying to make a difference. Yeah, even still, it it's it doesn't erase what's already happened and what's happening and the ways in which I benefit from that. Yeah. So there's this idea of this sense of responsibility that I have to to doing something about that. And yeah, that individual consumer choice thing is is frankly bullshit. It 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 I engage in it, and I don't think there'll ever be in a place where I won't be engaging with that. But the choices of, yeah, my choice for veganism or vegetarianism is important to me. And it, it, it would be, uh, it would have a, a hugely beneficial impact if, if everyone were to be mostly meat free or mostly animal product free, etc. On, on, on the environment, because agriculture is such a, a damaging area. But me doing those things as an individual is not doing very much. And you as a person making consumer choices uh, doesn't affect corporations dumping huge amounts of, of chemical waste into the environment and producing an, an ungodly level of devastation. It's just not something that, that an individual can solve. But still, I feel this obligation to make these, these quote-unquote more ethical choices. And still, I feel this obligation to make artwork that engages with those ideas and raises awareness. And just because I, I can't see what's happening on uh, the news and, and, and through the resources that I access without responding to it in some way. It feels egotistical, but, but it comes through in the artworks that I make because of that, that grief and anxiety. And yeah, it, it definitely plays in with a mental health aspect as well. And I think the, the nature flourishing in abandoned areas is definitely um, a positive spin on that. Yeah. Um, even moving away from the, the climate aspect, uh, I have this fascination with the environment that we've built and how it feels very hostile to, to all life, including human life. It feels like we're not designed for this level of, of under-stimulation with you know, yeah. blank white walls yeah. and floors and, and everything, flat surfaces, flat hard surfaces that, you know, we, we've evolved over millions of years i mean us as as uh, in our current genetic form as humans we've been around for about 200,000 years and only 12,000ish of those years have we had a civilization at all and so we we're, we're built for an environment of texture and softness and and hardness and contrast and something that i think about a lot that i have not seen much um many people delving into although I should probably be doing more research on it, uh, is this idea of, of, of parallel lines. I look around in the built environment, particularly when I'm, I'm feeling 
yeah, when when I'm not doing as well mentally, I look around and I see all of these straight lines parallel with each other, all of these squares and rectangles and cubes and cuboids, and it feels so alien to me. That this this sense that this would never exist in in nature. Um, getting a bit off topic there. No, no, it, it's true. You don't see so the the environments we created for ourselves and for our societies, houses, buildings is all squares, parallel lines, and you don't see that in in nature. It's all organic lines. You normally don't see any squares and cubes and stuff like that. Actually, there's an artist that I'm going to interview that she works on that. So the nature nature aspects, organic objects, and the actually the square uh, that is a human you know, human-created uh, form. And I think it, you, you were right uh, on there because it, it affects our mental health because you were, we, are, we weren't made to be, you know, so, so deployed of organic and environment and forms. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested and looking forward to listening to that one when that's out. And I'm, I'm in the sort of idea genesis and planning phase of a project that may or may not come to fruition working with a psychologist friend um, just to perhaps do some research uh, and an artwork or perhaps some science art if, if the research aspect is is not possible looking into that level of, of stimulation um, and its effect on people's well-being from the textures that we encounter like think of the forest floor versus concrete or linoleum yeah. um, and those you know, pervasive parallel lines straight strict rigid forms and things and, and how that might impact our well-being but i haven't got any uh, concrete details to share with you at the moment but the, the the built environment and and those aspects of it trouble me but then uh what i see is people managing to find their own little nook and, and flourishing in this area and then m even more interesting to me uh, are the the unintended good environments uh, for for other life so we've we've constructed an environment that is so hostile to so many forms of life and we've kept wild animals at bay for the most part there are wild animals in in every city there are birds in every city um, that are not domesticated and I love hearing bird song in the city it sounds a lot different and a lot more sparse most of the time but it is there and it, and it does remind me that there is wildness around us. And the other thing that I love that so many people hate uh, is rats. Um, <laughs> yeah, one of the very few creatures that can genuinely flourish in this hostile uh, and concrete yeah. and yeah, uh, hard environment that we've created is is the common rat, uh, ratus ratus. And those little creatures bring um, yeah so much uh, disgust to so many people concerns about disease and some of it has is valid and, and, and many people are squeamish or, or afraid of them but when I see them I am reminded that there are side benefits and there are things that can exist and when I walk past a building that's got water running down it from a pipe um, and notice that there are these wonderful colors that appear partly because of uh, mineral deposits and partly because of molds and lichens and moss that grows. Again, I'm reminded that there's wildness around us and it will, it will take its place. And as soon as we stop maintaining things, as soon as we stop eradicating it um, at every turn, it will rush back in. And, and there's a sense of wonder that I have in that. 
So you would say basically that these two teams, this contrasting subject that you are working, one is, you know, your intellectual view on what's happening worldwide. And the other one is, is your perspective of hope, wonder, and believing that not everything is going downhill especially in terms of biodiversity and humans growing side by side with other species. Yeah, and and it, it helps to keep that element of hope alive and keep that knowledge that although we're having this devastating impact on biodiversity, there are little areas that we are that we're not having a, a necessarily positive impact on, but we're allowing change and we're causing change yeah. and there are bacteria that are evolving to be able to break down plastics and things just by virtue of us dumping it all into the environment awful that we're doing it but tremendously interesting that that these these life forms are able to adapt to that um, and can hopefully cause some benefit for us uh, in the future in terms of fighting climate change and, and fighting that level of pollution working with yeah. life instead of just trying to replace it with machines or, or, or whatever idea we're having yeah. at this given time yeah so how do you prepare for your days? Do you have a set time for studio work? Yeah, so I've thought about this one a bit. Unfortunately, <laughs> not at the moment. Uh, it's one of my, my bigger issues that I'm facing, um, other than money, is time management. I'm I'm just had such an extremely busy schedule for about six months or so. And I realized when I was on residence in Liverpool a few weeks ago or so that I'm genuinely burning myself out and not taking that time for myself. And I've been starting to clear out my schedule and because I'm in the process of moving house, I've been trying to navigate, you know, as things are starting to settle down, where I can find that time and where I can rebuild a schedule that really works for me. For the moment, I've stopped applying to residencies and open calls and, and most of the opportunities that I would otherwise be, which is sad in some areas, but is a very necessary breather. And I think it's come at a good time, um, the seasonal idea of, of having a very busy social and um, yeah, work heavy summer, followed by a little bit more of relaxing and slowing down over the winter. It feels quite natural to do that. And so slowly those obligations have been disappearing and allowing me to build a bit more structure in my life. And there are aspects that I, I know, like I work a lot better in the evenings. So particularly for audio work and writing, I need to manage social time because that's often the time that, that friends and loved ones are free and, uh, you know, want to see me or, or want to host events. And yeah. things. So trying to be flexible, but also making sure, you know, every week I'm getting in a certain amount of time to, to do that work and a certain amount of time that is unfocused, unregulated, where I can explore elements. I'm not having to work on a project or uh, a commission or, or freelance. It is some time that I can just yeah explore maybe i want to go on a walk in nature and, and pick berries or maybe i want to take pictures of all the areas where lichen has has crept, crept into the city or maybe i just want to turn everything off those things are, are, are very important yeah yeah and i've started planning out a minimum of, of a few hours a week for research and, and personal development so reading research papers and looking at innovative techniques from other artists and how a certain work was made and how to use x technology or how something i already do know works on a more technical level and watching interviews and even just like planning out what artworks and exhibitions i want to see and, and when i can actually go and do that 
keeping that curiosity and, and a more structured learning environment, I think is very important as well as gaining that general experience by engaging with artwork on a daily basis and engaging with my environment on a daily basis. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's very important for the practice, I think. So you have that, that both balance of you have a structure, so you, you have to do daily this, that and that, but also being able to, okay, today I'm not going to do anything for a couple of hours and go for a walk or take pictures somewhere. It both help you become a better artist and individual and flourish. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it keeps that balance alive. I've also done something for a few years now, unrelated to, to my artistic practice, just for my mental health, where I set every other Sunday as a, a mental health day where I had, there's kind of conflicting ideas of self-care because self-care for me, uh, I, I think popularly it can be, you know, ordering yourself a pizza and, and like chilling out and things. But for me, when I think of self-care, it, it does feel like a task. Um, I have to go outside once a day. I have to uh, meditate when I'm feeling dysregulated or disassociative and all these other little bits and pieces that add up. The mental health day was the idea of that first kind of self-care where I could do whatever I wanted. Any plans that I made are up in the air. So if a friend wants to see me on Sunday, I can say, yeah, I'd love to see you. I can pencil you in for, for a time, but I I'm retain the ability to cancel at any moment. If I wake up and I'm not feeling like facing the world, yeah. I, can, I can make that decision. And on a, a more just general organizational level, I have a calendar that is filled with all sorts of wonderful colors of events that I've color coded based on what category they're in. And so I can have things that are uh, drop in or optional and have those on my calendar. So I know when they're happening and where and plan around that and then go or not go, depending on how I'm feeling and how the others around me are feeling. And then different things for art events or residencies or uh, talks or interviews, all those sorts of things that that I want to do. And that that color coding really, really helps me just kind of organize that in my mind and, and decide what I'm going to do. So that that level of scheduling has always remained, even in this intense period of busyness, um, because if it doesn't get added to the calendar, then, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to be able to think about it. Same as scouring yeah. emails. I go through my emails every morning and there are things that I can't deal with straight away and those get starred. And if it doesn't get starred, it's probably not going to get run to, around to uh, dealing with it. Yeah, that's beautiful. The way you, you schedule a day for yourself and your mental health is, I think, is very important. And yeah, as I said, it's it's a task. If you, It's not only ordering pizza and staying in, it's being aware of what brings you peace mentally and trying to do that every day, even if it's, as you said, going outside, meditate, working out, anything that helps you stabilize and be yourself again. And that's very important. It helps you with everything in terms of being busy, uh, being in the studio or, you know, taking time to be with friends, stuff like that. It helps you that your mental health is stable and you're, you are whole with yourself, basically. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and another thing that I've just thought about that I, that I do for that, something that's extremely valuable to me is just walking out in the city. Often I'll be listening to podcasts about design or about uh, therapy skills or some particular niche interest and just walking. Um, sometimes I'm, I'm walking for a while because I'm commuting or getting from one place to another, but sometimes I'm, I'm just wandering through the city and yeah no no feeling of pressure to create to notice anything in particular to take pictures 
I will if I if I see something that that catches my attention. But that I think is is probably a lot more instrumentive uh, and instructional in my in my practice than I give it credit for because it it allows me to to just experience being alone in a busy place or alone in a particular environment without engaging with with some higher reasoning skills or anything like that 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 I feel the need to 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 be engaging with. Thanks for listening to the show. This was a wonderful conversation. I hope you got as much as I did from it. So we are at Instagram, at Insight of an Echo Artist. Go have a look. You can reach me directly if you want. Send me a message. I'm totally open to that. You can also make a sustainable donation to the show by visiting our page at patreon.com slash of an Echo Artist. We have different tiers from you to choose from. Also, a good way to support us is by reviewing the show. So thank you.